0: Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Matt Carpenter on July 10th, Lord's Day service. Exodus morning is Leviticus chapter 26, Leviticus 26, 1 through 18. You shall not make idols for yourselves, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary, I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of the vintage and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts, and the sword will not go through your land. You will chase your enemies, and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. For I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. But if you do not obey me, and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, and if your soul abhors my judgment, so that you do not perform all my commandments, but break my covenant, I will also do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemy shall eat it. I will set my face before you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. And after all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins." Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your promises. We thank you for making the way of life clear. Cause us to walk in it, to receive it, and to grow in our knowledge and love for you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, amen. In 1940, a book by the Southern writer Thomas Wolfe was posthumously published titled, You Can't Go Home Again. A work of autobiographical fiction, it depicts a young author who had previously written too candidly about his hometown in North Carolina. And he was not welcomed when he went back home. On a larger plane, The book depicts the changes that happened in America from the idealistic country it once was to one that was ravaged by decadence, greed, and hypocrisy. Remember, this is 1940. As with the small town, Wolf laments that we can't return to the America of the past. Nostalgia is a powerful drug. The desire to return to a semi-remembered and semi-illusory past has always been with us. Ever since our father Adam's first exile from Eden, we have wanted to return. Yet, like Sisyphus, who was forced by Zeus to roll a stone up a hill, only to have the stone roll back down just before he got it, to the top, our pursuit of this is futile. Either providence prevents us from going back home, from returning to this place we want to be, or in a greater disappointment, the return happens and we see that it's failed to meet our expectations. If you've not experienced this before, don't worry, you will. The time comes, and it comes over and over. Leviticus was written to Israel before they entered the promised land. And it holds out hope, it holds out the promise to them of their return to Eden, that is their return to the presence of God. If you look in the first verses 4 through 13, the blessings of Eden are reiterated. Yahweh promises that if they sow the seeds of holiness, those are the things he tells them to do. Verses 1 through 3 is a summary of everything that they've been told to do up to this point. He says if you do these things, if you, you offer your worship and the offerings, that's what the first several chapters are about. If you pursue moral and ceremonial cleanliness, your, your, the holiness codes. And if you keep the Sabbath and those feasts, if you sow those seeds of holiness, the spiritual harvest and even the physical harvest that, that, that will result will change the world. We heard this morning in, in our reading about w- asking the question, What nation is there so great that has the blessings that you have? So, just some of the examples of the blessings that come and see if you hear echoes of Eden with this. He said, There will be plentiful rain and abundant food. Notably, the, the, the food of grain and of the fruits, particularly the grapes. So they will have bread and wine in abundance, but they'll also have protection and dominion over their enemies. Those enemies, may some are human, animal, and even spiritual, and they would bear children. All of these great blessings come when God's people are faithful. And think about what he promises in Eden. Be fruitful physically, the land as well. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air. All of this, this is an echo of Eden. But most of all, the greatest blessing of all of those things And also the foundational blessing of those things is found in verses 11 and 12. I will set my tabernacle among you. My soul shall not abhor you. In other words, we're going to walk together. He even says that in the next verse, verse 12. I will walk among you and be your God. That was Eden. In Eden, they have... The promise of God walking with them. That's what they have to look forward to. Yahweh's presence would there. He would not just dwell in his tabernacle or in his tent. He would walk with them in love and fellowship, just as he did in the original garden. The restoration of the world would begin in the promised land if they entered through the right door. The door was the tabernacle. You come through, you worship God. This is where it begins. But if they sought another door to God, they would be turned away. The curses that are found in verses 14 through 43 are comprehensive. I only read a portion. Feel free to read further to your great discouragement. Plagues, sorrow, fear, falling before enemies, environmental disaster, famine, fewer children born, and empty worship are all just a few of the curses that come from disobedience. But lastly, the worst Part of the curse is that Yahweh would remove them in exile. He would cast them out just as Adam and Eve had been cast out of Eden for their disobedience. If Israel refused to serve God, they would be cast out. Sadly, the curses of Leviticus 26 foretell the story of God's people. The history of Israel and then later Israel and Judah when it was divided is marked by overall disobedience with pockets of obedience. Consequently, you can find all the prescribed curses that we read in verses 14 to 43, you can find all of those in the history of God's people. Have you ever wondered about some of the bizarre stories in Kings and Chronicles, have you ever thought, why would, I mean, not that we doubt that it's there, but why would it record that? Why would it tell us about kids making fun, or not just little kids, but probably older, not quite out of the house, teenagers making fun of Elisha and then a she-bear coming and devouring them? I mean, besides the fact that parents have been making a lot of hay with that story for a number of centuries now, why else would that story be there? That story is a working out of what he says will happen in Leviticus chapter 26 when he says that the wild beast will come and devour you. And that's not the only time that that happens. So we see all of these curses worked out in the history of God's people. You can read in Kings and Chronicles about division, cannibalism, defeat in battle, famine, drought, as I already said, adults and children eaten by animals, and finally, exile. Yes. They were not faithful. They chose another way, and they were removed. But we didn't read the promise at the end. Verses 44 through 46, look, look with me there. He says, yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, when they're exiled, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them, to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. Do you hear the promise? The good news? Though they were exiled, Yahweh would remember his covenant. He would give them the opportunity for restoration. They didn't deserve it. There was no reason for him to do that except his own faithfulness to his word but they will never return the same way. They would not come back to God's presence in the same way. Once they were exiled, the glory of the temple, the glory of God's presence departed and it never returned. We can see when the tabernacle was instituted, what happened? The glory of God came down If you read later on, I believe it's 2 Chronicles 7, when Solomon, the temple of Solomon is built, what happens? The glory of God comes down there as well. But we know from history that Solomon's temple was beaten down. Later, Herod built a temple. No glory came. When God's people returned from exile in Babylon, the glory did not come. They knew the story of Eden. They remembered. They could wish for those promises to still remain. But that door was shut, and it would never open again but a new door was promised. When God's people could not make their way to the door, the door came to them. But at first that door didn't look very grand. It actually seemed quite ordinary. The new tabernacle was a man who walked among God's people, healing, restoring, freeing, and feeding them. He was the shepherd they never had. Yes, they had David, they had Solomon, they had prophets, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah. They had all of these men, but they never had the shepherd they wanted, the one who would lead them into that promised hopeful land until now and he did he gathered his people in his arms he led them in the green pastures they could not find on their own but then there's another abrupt turn in the story do you remember what Jesus called the scribes and the Pharisees I mean he called them a number of things but one of the things he called them was wolves And he called them, in another place, serpents. These are the wild beasts. They're pictures of wild beasts who have returned to God's people and they're trying to devour them. And doing a pretty fair job, I would add, until Jesus came. These wild beasts foretold in the curse, killed the shepherd. They destroyed the last remaining door of God's people. But after three days, after they had destroyed that door, they found something they could not destroy. They found an eternal tabernacle that filled heaven and earth. There would be no destroying this. Jesus faced the evil beasts that were part of the curse for his own people's disobedience. He faced them, and in doing so, he turned the world right side up. Now, everything could grow again. Now the curse that was upon the land has been taken. He took it on his back. He took it to the place of death. He came back and the curse is gone. The first time we see Jesus after his resurrection is in a garden. The husbandman who planted himself for the life of the world now oversees the garden of life and invites us To come. So, brothers and sisters, let me give you, declare unto you the good news the door is open and will not shut. But everything is not quite right. We're still haunted by the memory of Eden. We long for the simple joy of God's garden. We want to be in the place, in that garden, where we can be known, received, understood, and welcomed. We look for it in our relationships. We fight for it when we argue with parents, with our spouse, or with our friends about things that really don't matter. Why are we doing that? It's because we want... to to know and to be known, to be welcomed, to be received. Or when we feel the silent pain of rejection because we couldn't do everything right. We want to go home. But we can't really go home again because home is not there. So if we belong to Jesus, why do we still sometimes feel out of place? Didn't he promise all this great eternal life that's supposed to happen the second that I believe? Well, I can't speak for you, but I'm but speaking for myself, sometimes if, this is, if life right now is everything that eternal life is ever going to be, there's a few hiccups. Why why do we still feel out of place? It's because we live on the edge of eternity. We occasionally catch glimpses of what's coming. We get a brief pang of joy that shoots through us, but it doesn't remain. Or to borrow, from C.S. Lewis, it's quote, the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. We are in the expanding courtyard of Yahweh's new tabernacle. This is where we live, this is our inheritance. But we're not yet capable of dwelling in the full glory of our God. Again, to borrow from Lewis, we want something else which can hardly be put into words. To be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become a part of it. Our deepest yearning is to dwell with God and his people in the new creation. Leviticus 26 beckons us to come home and gives us hope that we will, but not through the old door. In the light of the glorious promises of Leviticus 26, we have Leviticus 27. Now if you read, This was my first response. When I first read through Leviticus and and I was preparing to preach, Leviticus 26 has all these great promises, especially front loaded and really exciting. And then 27, it's about stuff like vows and taking care of the tabernacle and redeeming the land, stuff like that. Why does that come on the heels of such amazing promises? Because we don't just wait for the future restoration of Christ. We participate now in the beginnings of that restoration. We don't just wait, we work. We're called to pursue the daily work of blessing, tending, cultivating, and strengthening we must not become fixated either on what we're missing you know everything that i want but i can't have or on perfecting everything here and now the tabernacle courtyard was from its beginning a messy place all those offerings being butchered all the time It was a messy place, and that is okay. That's the way He ordained it. Even though God's work was going on there, it's still messy. And even though God's work is going on here and now, it's still a messy place. Work where you're called, heal where you're able. But don't try to create your own door to God's new creation. It won't work. Thomas Wolfe was partially wrong. We can go home, just not through that door. The longing will never go away. And we really, if we're honest, we really don't want it to. Do you really want to be perfectly satisfied and never long for anything more than what you have right now? I hope not. As Paul says, here we have no abiding city. But one day, your heavenly Father will call you from this earthly courtyard into His unveiled presence. And there... You will see not an ethereal place, but He'll call you through His presence into a place of greater beauty and glory that is more real and tangible than you ever imagined. And then we will be truly home. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website. At Trinity Reformed That's Trinity Reformed K I R K.com.